Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. In every episode, we'll have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away, just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Bill Hamilton. Bill joined WNL's faculty in 2001 and is a professor of biology and head of the biology department. He studies plant ecology, herbivores, and microbes. Most of his current research focuses on large grazing animals like bison and elk in Yellowstone National Park, where he is well acquainted with a ranger staff as well. You may have had him for fundamentals of biology or one of his major level courses like medicinal botany or experimental botany, or encountered him in his work with WNL's campus garden and compost system. Outside of his teaching, his many interests include sustainability and beer. We're so glad to have you join us today, Bill. Glad to be here. So normally, Bill, we'd be in your office recording this podcast, but because of the times we're recording via Zoom, and I have to say that in all the Zoom calls I have taken part in, your background has got to be the most, um, well, interesting background I have seen. And I have to ask you to describe it to our listeners. So my background is a rather large bison bull with his tail up, looking dead at the camera. This was with a hundred millimeter lens. So it was far, far enough way to be safe, but still close enough that if he had decided to charge, it would have been a problem. And when a bison bull puts up its tail, it's charge or discharge. And in this case, it was discharge. Um, a student was catching a picture of a bison urinating, which I joke about being extra credit because we do focus on the effects of urine hits in the grasslands in Yellowstone. Um, but it's a bigger deal to catch a cow urinating than a, a bull. So it wasn't full credit. But par partial credit. I have yeah. to say that that is definitely the most unique extra credit work I have heard of. Um, so this, this subject leads quite naturally to a related topic, and that's beer. Um, you started brewing when you were an undergrad, and you're still going strong now, right? Yes. As an undergrad taking organic chemistry, I thought, oh, I can make a still. And then I realized that wasn't safe. I had watched enough episodes of MASH to realize that they explode. <laughs> so my roommate and I found a homebrew kit in the back of Popular Science that came from Massachusetts. It was a food grade garbage can with two cans of malt extract. Um, and it was not very good beer, but that got us started down the road. And um, I've brewed continuously. I think there was one year during my PhD that I didn't brew a single batch of beer, but I've brewed one every year since 1991. Would you say that they've gotten increasingly better? I, I think so. Um, we managed to sell some uh, at Blue Lab, so um, I think they've gotten better. Uh, that was just literally a no-boil batch, so it had everything going against it. Um, my, my buddy Brian and I, we then got into all-grain brewing, and that's when it gets it improves and we got better fermenters and all the equipment that goes along with it and playing around with all the different types of ingredients and yeasts and additives. So for those of you who don't know, Bill was a co-founder of the Blue Lab microbrewery in Lexington. 
Bill, can you tell us a little bit about Blue Lab? Sure. Well, it was there were about four of us that kind of um, started a little homebrew club in Lexington, and Tom Lovell, Jim Casey, uh, he's class of '91 economics professor, uh, Dave Foff, who's the head of the IQ Center. We were brewing in my driveway for about a year with a 20 gallon system, and we kind of said, let's take this to the next step. And uh, Tom and I kind of took the biggest um, interest in it. And we took about a year largely coming up with a name and um, a location. And then we got the name, but the location took even longer in Lexington. And in 2000, November of 2010, we opened up uh, Blue Lab. So what was the most satisfying part about operating a brewery? Being able to think up a recipe and then have people pay money to for it and come back for more and, and drink it and be able to share the the fun that goes along with drinking beer and live music that we had at Blue Lab. That was another really satisfying uh, part of uh, Blue Lab. But just being able to utilize my science knowledge in another way and bring in a little bit of artistry because it's not all science. It's thinking about what ingredients might play well together. Well, I can say that from a personal experience, I completely enjoyed your your time at Blue Lab. Um, was there anything that was surprising to you? Well, when we started out, um, IPAs were unknown in 2010, and uh, we had to really explain to people why it was worth trying. They heard hoppy. Um, they knew people knew that hops were bitter, but they didn't want to try it. You zoom ahead now and. IPAs each year, the home brew, the brewing industry thinks hops or IPAs and high hop beers will disappear and they don't. So it, that was a, a big shift. People were used to drinking commercial lagers and brown ales and easy drinking beers and hops are still king when it comes to selling craft beer. What's the weirdest thing that has ever happened when you were brewing at Blue Lab? There were lots of weird things at Blue Lab, but specifically in a good way, they were weird. Uh, while brewing, um, things like to get clogged in the brewing process. There's pumps and there's things settling out. And particularly in the fermenters, they're conical shaped and everything tapers down to the bottom intentionally so you can get rid of uh, trube, which is the leftovers of the, the uh, boiling process, yeast and hops as they settle out. And... I was cleaning out a fermenter with one of our employees. And unfortunately, I opened the valve just as he put pressure on the, the tank. And I got a face full of probably four gallons of yeast and hops. <laughs> and then I was due to work that day. So I was <laughs> rather coated. And, you know, yeast, Vegemite is yeast. And it, so I kind of had this funky smell for a while. And it was in my ears. I was blowing it out of my nose for a couple of days because it really got in there. But that's just, it happens all the time, unfortunately. Oh, so did you smell like a brewery when you went to class that day? I did not. That was a Saturday. I, I tried I tried to separate church and state as much as possible. But I did, you know, I've always thought that if I got pulled over for Le by Lexpo for a broken taillight, I could have said I work in a brewery. Because filling kegs, you get covered with beer and you you don't have you you don't take a sip but you still reek what about uh weirdest thing in general at blue lab not just regarding the brewing process but dealing dealing with um the public perhaps or employees 
I think the, the weirdest consistent thing was getting reviews on Yelp or on untapped where they would, we had a green chili beer and we had three or four people that commented that it tasted way too much like green chilies and they didn't like it and odd things like that. We, we advertised it as, as green, green chili, chili beer, beer. And they didn't like it because it tasted like green chili beer, those, <laughs> those little things. And the, the, you know, you want to answer back, but you just avoid it. Um, or our water tasted funny. Well, we're a brewery and the beer tastes all right. The water comes out of the tap. So, you know, hmm. little little oddities like that were always fun to deal with. When you get a bad batch of beer, what do you do with it? And, and why? what's the most common reason why it went bad? Well, in all my years of brewing, I only had one. And it was a small batch when we first started. And... Um, it was a batch of amber beer that took me 16 hours to make, and it should have taken eight. It was, you know, just one of those days. And I forgot to sanitize the fermenter, so it got infected with the souring bugs that you sometimes want in a sour beer, but you don't want in an amber beer. So um, I actually kegged it off, and we used it to make a sour beer that then aged for another two years. Because it was perfectly good beer, but a sour amber with just one, it was lactobacillus that had it infected. It just doesn't sell. So I made lemonade out of lemons and uh, we then served as raspberry beret. We added raspberries to a wine barrel and put that beer in with a couple other uh, soured beers and it aged it for a year in a, a red wine barrel. Oh, that sounds delicious. It was good. So a couple years ago, my husband and I were in Salzburg, Austria, and a local recommended a neighborhood pub where we could go and have a beer. And the, the place was amazing. Beer had been brewed there since something like 1620s or um, thereabouts. And with the many different beer halls inside in the outdoor beer garden, the place could serve a couple of thousand people at a time. And I swear I'm not exaggerating on that. What I didn't realize then, though, that it was the largest beer tavern in Austria. You walked up to the serving area, you picked up what size stein you wanted, big, bigger or biggest, and then they poured your beer for you and they only served one type of beer. These thousands of people were only drinking a single lager. Even Blue Lab, which was a small brewery, had a wide variety of beer to choose from. Do you know or have a feel for what makes Austria different from the U.S. and that they seem quite happy with just one choice of beer and why we may want many? I think in part it's because history and tradition still has a lot of um, importance in Austria. And that even happens in you know Germany, Czechoslovakia, where there's one beer produced. And the U.S. is a melting pot of a lot of those traditions. So that may be a piece of the, the reason that we want choice. Also, fast food gives us lots of choices. So we like to have choices as, as a, um, Americans, I guess. So it's just always been the tradition that in the craft brewing industry. We had upwards of 14 beers at any one time at a Blue Lab, and only four of those were mainstays. The rest were oddball one-offs or seasonal beers. Um, and it just seems like the industry has produced the the next new beer was always the best seller and that's still the case at, at breweries people really? are looking for that next new beer 
it strikes me that Blue Lab was a pretty good example of a liberal arts in action. You were blending chemistry, biology, graphic design, marketing, along with customer service and business accounting. Was that your impression as well? Or did you ever think about that at that time? I didn't, although I, Tom and I did lots of interviews with undergraduate students, journalism, business administration, biochemistry. So we were contributing to the liberal arts education, but it definitely was. And my interest had already been kind of cemented in brewing, but then operating a business was a whole new thing. And we actually, you know, we consulted with Jeff Shea from the entrepreneurship program uh, when we were getting ready to expand and talking about some of those opportunities. And he had contacts in the brewing industry that actually gave us a lot of information that was useful. So it was knowing the the right people and, and um, you know, Tom's experience with alumni relations and marketing and his business administration degree kind of helped. And we had a good synergy between the two of us because I made the beer and he was good at, at working on marketing the beer and reaching out to people. I stayed in the back and he was the face of the place. Sounds like a good partnership. Going back on the graphics, graphic arts part of that last question, you mentioned that you spent a long time on the logo, which I love. Can you describe it and what went into creating it and, and how logos and design factor into the overall thought process of a commercial brewer? Well, yeah, the logo was, uh, we were getting quite desperate and uh, Tom's brother-in-law uh, works worked at the time at UVA and the graphic designer for UVA athletics had never done a beer logo. And he offered to do it for free. He just wanted some swag out of us when we were done with it. We gave him some concepts. The logo kind of looks like the PBR logo a little bit. That's the blue label, you know, the, the winning label. It's a beer cap with um, the profile of a, a Labrador retriever kind of looking over its shoulder and it's blue. And then House Mountain is in the background. Um, it's a profile picture I actually took from the greenhouse um, in the biology department. And it's it. we sold a lot of product just because it had a dog on it. So, um, and I think we, pro we probably still could. People came in just to buy glasses. You know, they'd get a six pack of glasses to go be empty glasses because they wanted to have a Blue Lab uh, glass logo. So it was, it, what's amazing is this designer was so good that he only, I think we went through two iterations and it was done and it, it really resonated with us and it, it was a great logo. We had talked a little bit before the podcast about the current vogue for beers with unusual ingredients. What is the strangest beer that you've made and why did you make it? I think it was, um, we call, I called it Squazon. So it was a squash Saison. Um, so Saisons are beers that are fermented kind of like wheat beers. They can take on those flavors of clove and banana, but they're, they're fermented at really high temperatures, um, 80 to 90 degrees. And that's what produces lots of interesting flavors. It can cause problems, but if you control it properly, it works out. But what I did was I got a bunch of Hubbard squash and Kuza squash from Swishers up in, uh, or Swishers up in Fairfield. And one of their, um, the granddaughter of the Swishers worked at Blue Lab. And I just roasted them in the oven with a bunch of pepper, then added them to the mash tun and added them the puree to the boil kettle. And it had this backbone of kind of like, oh, that's squash, but it wasn't bad. And we got a lot of free fermentable sugar out of the squash. We sold out five barrels of that really quickly. Um, and I was kind of concerned because people see squash in beer and they're not, you know, 
hesitate, but it, it was a big seller. Oh, I think I would have liked to have tasted that. So you once told me that the simpler the beer, the harder it is to make. Why? Well, so in the classic example, that is a good Czech pills or a German lager or Austrian lager. You can't hide behind other flavors. So, and I'm not picking on the beers I'm going to mention, but British ale yeasts, they produce lots of other unique flavors that can hide some of the problems that you might have had with um, fermentation or with the brewing process. And IPAs, you can cover up a lot of issues with just adding more hops. The bitterness of the hops and higher alcohol, your tongue doesn't taste as much when it's got more alcohol on it. So you can mask those things. But a good Czech pills has one or two ingredients in it and a lager yeast, um, ingredients as far as grains go. And it can be hazy and that's not pleasant to the eye. And um, they get skunky. They actually, a, a lager when it's fermenting tastes, smells like rotten eggs and can taste like it too. The lagering process gets rid of those odors. So you, there's patience involved with those simpler beers as well that um, modern production doesn't like to wait for beer. But it can take up to four months to properly lager a good Hellas or Pils, just waiting for the yeast to finish up cleaning up the beer. So you need to be a, a patient brewer in those cases. Yes. We're going to migrate to a more academic area now. Uh, so everyone at home, track down your Latin dictionary and get ready to hear about bacteria. So Bill, can you explain to us exactly what is a microbiome? Microbiomes are everywhere. We, we've heard of them in the, the human gut and being important for uh, digestion, but they're on your skin, they're in the soil, they're in the air to some extent. There are, uh, the microbiome makes up bacteria and fungi that work together as a functional community. And in the case of the skin or the microbiome in your stomach or in your large intestine, the good bugs, as I like to call them, help fight off the bad bugs because they're doing well. And when you take antibiotics, those good bugs get knocked out and sometimes you can have issues. And that's why eating yogurt, which has active cultures in it or yogurt with active cultures should be consumed, restores that microbiome. It's an area of research that's pretty much covering from ecosystem work like what I do down to lots of medical work trying to understand the, the microbiome of, of humans and what, how it affects uh, mental health and just general medical wellness. You had shared some fascinating information um, a while ago about how stress affects the human gut. Could you share that a little bit with our listeners? Sure. And um, by no way am I an expert on this, but I've read a lot. And we have actually some faculty in, in the biology department at Washington and Lee that do work on this in uh, rats. But uh, during stressful times, our body makes a, a hormone called cortisol, which kind of gives you that feeling of low blood sugar a little bit. And cortisol can affect your microbiome and get rid of some of the good bugs and in getting rid of the good bugs, that doesn't mean bad bugs take over, but there's a more and more data that suggests that the uh, microbiome in your large intestine has effects on your ability to sleep, mental well-being, as well as lots of other biologically important uh, factors. And it's all, it all comes down to this kind of uh, the stress uh, hormone called cortisol. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that during this time. Yes. Um, Sourdough, sauerkraut, sour beer, all related? Yes. Good sour beers and sourdoughs and 
most spontaneously fermented sauerkrauts do not have just one bug in them. Um, the one thing they share is lactobacillus, which is a bacteria that makes lactic acid, which gives it its sourness, unlike bacteria that make acetic acid that make vinegar taste like vinegar. But the best ones, kombucha, sourdough, and sauerkraut and good sour beers, are five or six different bacteria and yeast that work together at different periods of time. And one may be around at the beginning and then not show up again until the end when three or four others in the middle have broken down different components within the, the product to give it unique flavors. Let's move on and, and talk about your interest in sustainability and your work on that front at WNL. You were involved in getting the campus composting project off the ground, right? Yes, I believe it was in 2002, the Associated Colleges as a, of the South, which we remember, had grants for campus as a green laboratory. And um, I put in a, a grant as an untenured faculty member. Any chance you get a, to write a grant and get some money, it always looks good. And I proposed to, to test methods of composting that would work on our campus with the dining hall. This is back when the dining hall was still in Evans and catering was housed there. So we captured a lot of material and that's when it got started. And we zoom ahead now to we have a commercially produced system that is taking even plate scrapings out of the dining hall now. And it's exponential growth with the amount that we have started composting on campus. How long did it take you to get it up and running? Well, I would say that to get it to the current day, it took 16 years, 15 years to get the commercial system up until then. It was piecing together um, components and getting the students. It's a student run. The students collect the compost from all the different locations. And we now have a, uh, um, an employee that's responsible for maintaining the system. So I no longer have to push around compost in my free time, which I kind of miss, actually. So now with the system that we have, we're, we're seeing that we could actually have a, more units to do this because there's lots of compostables on campus. And we're starting to make compost that's of high enough quality that down the road we'll be able to use it uh, out on the front campus as opposed to just in the campus garden. Wow, that sounds uh, like a win all the way around. So I, I once heard that uh, the campus system could compost a hog. Is that true? And it's such a crazy thing to comprehend. Yes. The, so the system we have is a, it's kind of like a cement bunker with um, three sides that are eight feet high and then a, a aerated grate. So there's PVC pipes in the bottom that have an air compressor that blow air in it on a known schedule. And the system that we designed is based on one that was used originally for highway mortalities and pig mortalities at hog farms. And they could put two hogs in, uh, dead hogs in, and within 20 days, there would be close to nothing left. And that's uh, setting it and forgetting it. Our system, we continuously add for about three weeks, but it, it has that capability. So what's happening to the system now that there are no students on campus and nothing to compost? It's sitting there, uh, not gaining any more. We were a, a third of a way through a bin when everything stopped and that's been now kind of capped off and the system's running and Mike Tolley, who is responsible for taking care of it, comes out once a week and monitors things and moves piles around, but we're on hold until we can start collecting again. 
So if you look back over the, the 15, 16 years, what would you say the most satisfying part of the project was for you? Well, starting with, with a completely student-run crew in the beginning and showing that that model could work um, quite well, and until we got to a mechanized system that students aren't allowed to drive tractors and things like that, it, it kept doing that. And students are still actively in, engaged. I think we have upwards of 12 students that are on the compost crew because of schedules. We need a lot of students doing the nightly pickups and the, the daily pickups. So when we started the campus garden and started putting compost back into the campus garden and that food was going to campus kitchen and some of the herbs back in the early days were going into the dining hall and we could say, your food scraps grew this basil that we made the pesto out of and we closed the loop and I think that's when we got the most traction for saying this, this is really something worth doing because it wasn't just we're reducing landfill tipping fees, but it was an educational opportunity where we could really reap the benefits in having not certified organic, but truly organically grown produce from our own campus organic waste. And they could see it and they could taste it, bring it full circle. Yes. What would you say, you, you, you talked about uh, the industrial composting. Um, what is the biggest difference between industrial composting and say backyard composting? Well, industrial composting has an active way or mechanical way of aerating the compost so that it doesn't get too hot and that it doesn't get, it has enough oxygen to get to 150 degrees to be compost, but then not so hot that it becomes dangerous. And backyard composts tend to be heavy on either carbon, dead plant tissue, uh, wood chips, or really heavy on wet things, uh, green lawn clippings or banana peels. And those things are, it's called putricible. Um, pu um, they, they're putrid and those putricible solids tend to create odors and then people get dis discouraged because they have smelly compost. And backyard composting doesn't make very much compost. That's a big difference. You know, I, I was an aggressive composter at home for many years and I never got enough to use in a garden bed, but it's, it's a good outcome. If you're not sending it to the landfill, it's not turning into future methane when that landfill is capped and going into the atmosphere. So you, you touched a little bit on this in, in your last answer, but on the microscopic level, what makes for good compost and what needs to be happening in that muck to make it useful to plants? I, I, I am a, a composter, I'm also a gardener, and uh, I do have enough compost to use, which is always very satisfying, right. but, but I, I never really, you know, I, I understand the basics, but not on a microscopic level. So if you could explain that to us. Well, compost is another microbiome. There are at least 30 different species of bacteria and fungi. And even in, in some parts of bacteria, there are protists, single-celled organisms that survive in certain components of the, the compost. And compost is a, is a cycle, just like making an aged sour beer, it takes time. And each bacteria has a different role to play. And for those roles to be played, they need a diversity of food. So a compost that has a wide variety of inputs will then support a better microbiome and then be a, a healthier compostable unit. Whereas if you're just putting in lawn clippings and, and uh, dead leaves from the fall, 
that's just two types of food. But if you put in coffee grounds and banana peels and avocado peels, napkins, paper towels that aren't filled with grease, lots of different, uh, lots of variety, just no bones or oils or meats in your backyard compost. We can do those on campus. That variety then supports that variety within that microbiome of the compost system. What do you think makes for an effective sustainability initiative? That's a good question. It has to be something that kind of fills the three, um, well, in my mind, the, the three circles that make up sustainability, economics, ecology, and, and social values. Um, so that you know, it's easy to say, make our economic arguments to conserve energy, but being mindful of the fact that if you're using less energy, you may be having improving the air quality somewhere else outside of your state or your general area. And it's also having a benefit to the environment. Those are, in my personal view, always our home runs. But any of those three circles can be the focus. And then the other two, just you have to be mindful of those other two components. Um, when only one of those three areas drives it, it quite often won't resonate with enough people because everybody can usually get behind one of those three circles. And for it to function, you don't need everybody to totally agree on the importance of those three areas. But if people can come together on two of the three or just one, you have a lot of uh, positive outcomes. That reminds me of the, the thermometers that went up around campus a while ago. Um, it was a fascinating glimpse of how an initial disruption can lead to an improved living environment. Um, can you tell us about those thermometers and how they ultimately benefited the campus? That was, um, I can't remember the year, but it was the early years of the sustainability committee. And we were doing the five for five plan to save energy. I think it was five years to save $5 million in energy, something wow. like that. I was working with Scott Beebe and Mike Carbagnola, the head of facilities at the time on the sustainability committee. And energy usage um, used to be that you kind of picked your own temperature in your office or you could. Um, and it wasn't as centralized. And part of the five for five was to um, have it centralized, digital control in buildings that where it was possible. And with the renovation of the front um, campus, the colonnade uh, buildings, digital control was possible throughout the whole campus. So we came up with the idea of maximum of 68 in the winter and for heating and no cooler than 72 for air conditioning. And in doing that and setting those uh, temperature uh, restrictions, we found a lot of failures in the, the facilities that could be fixed. So in creating this policy, we actually were able to improve efficiencies by identifying places that didn't have their cooling systems operating properly. It actually increased the, the gain from that five for five because people would call up and say, well, it's 66 in here and you, it's, you say it's 68. And they were able to find out that that unit wasn't working properly and they could fix it. So you said earlier that you've involved students um, and also alumni in your sustainability work for the university. Is there any project that jumps out uh, to you as being particularly noteworthy in that way? Well, the, the composting project is my, is my baby. I think that was um, definitely the, the first one where I realized that WNL students in my second year here would dig down deep into compostable material and pull out garbage and be involved. 
But a, a broader kind of an, a truly educational opportunity was when the, the consulting group in the, the Williams School did an assessment with a private uh, contractor of the feasibility of, of solar power on campus. They brought in a company, Shaco Solar in Richmond, that did a, an assessment for them and showed the capabilities. And two years later, that information then kind of translated into this is feasible. And I think it, it just coming from students and they presented that to President Ruscio at the time. And so that information was available and I think it helped foster our current solar install- installation on campus. Oh, that's great. So I'd like to have a little bit of fun with you now um, as we near the end of our podcast, and we're going to call it our lightning round. Um, So when I say something, you just tell me what pops into your head. It's your favorite bacteria. Well, I'm a microbiome person, so it's kind of hard to pick one, but I'd have to say uh, lactobacillus. It's like picking your favorite child, right? Just tough to do. Bison or beef? For consumption, um, bison. And what for beef? Well, I, I, I eat them both. But um, <laughs> All right. The, the best beer you've ever had. Atrial Rubicite from Jester King in Texas. Worst beer you've ever had. Probably Meister Brow. Doesn't exist anymore, so it's safe to really pick on it. Mm, but you drank it. Yes. Yes. Weirdest thing you've ever done for a research project? Get three students in the summer of 2009 to follow around around a vet to collect dung directly from cows, dairy cows. (laughs) I hope that class had extra extra credit. It was their idea. (laughs) Favorite thing about WNL alumni? I, they're always welcoming. You know, when I go to alumni events or uh, see somebody when I'm out traveling, there's always that, that instantaneous connection. Like we all come from the same place. And it, it's just like, it's like seeing a friend after 10 years where you just step into a conversation. There's always a commonality to have a conversation. Oh, I love that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our WNL community? I'm looking forward to another 20 years. Excellent. Well, Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you. It's been fun. And thanks as always to you for listening. We hope you discovered something new. To read more about today's podcast and check out other ways to continue your lifelong learning with WNL, you can head to our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong. You can also find WNL's faculty reading list, sheltering in place with a few good books, and information on how to join our new WNL book club. We hope you'll join us back here again soon. Thanks again, and until then, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.